Hello and welcome back to Series 3 of Launch, Alan and Ivory's careers podcast. My name is Bianca Vasirake, and today's episode is ICM 101. Joining me to tell us more about what it is like to work in ANO's International Capital Markets Department, I have Andrew Enga, a senior associate in the Dead Capital Markets Group, or GSG, which is part of the broader ICM department, and Ruby Avison, a one-year qualified associate in the same department. Welcome to this episode, and thank you very much for being here in person today. Well, thank you very much for asking us to join you. Yes, lovely to be here. So, starting with the basics, how is the ANO London International Capital Markets, or ICM, as we call it, department structured? And what are some of the key similarities and differences between its sub-departments or sub-groups? Thanks. That's a really good place to start. Although I think before getting into that, it might make sense just to sort of step back a bit and look at ICM in general. Sure. Generally speaking, international capital markets, ICM, it involves people with capital transferring it to people that need capital. So it's essentially investors transferring capital to companies or to banks. And it's done by the investors purchasing a variety of different products, each of which serves a different need, so has different features. Okay. And A&O covers all of those products. So we have a full range of capital markets work. We look at debt, equity capital markets, derivatives, structured finance, securitization, etc. So if it's done, we help with it. And the London ICM department is structured around those product groups. So I work in a group called the General Securities Group. That's probably better understood as essentially being the debt capital markets group. We tend to use the term general because we do a bit more than just issuance work. So for instance, I tend to look at liability management, which is what you do with bonds once they've been issued. I look at equity linked products. But general seems to be quite a good feature, good name, but it's essentially debt capital markets. And then we have other groups. So we have the Derivative and Structured Finance Group. That's a group that looks at what I would characterise as being the more complicated structured products. It's something that we often see on deals. So quite often there's collaboration between the groups. So where we need derivative specialists, there'll be collaboration. And then there's other groups such as the Securitization Group, the US Corporate Finance Group, which also has a high yield team as well. And then there's the Corporate Trustee and Agency Group. And I think it's really important to understand that Whilst we use those labels internally, actually, whatever the deal needs in terms of expertise will be on the deal. So quite often we find that there's collaboration between the groups. And I think this leads into very nicely my next question, which is how does the GSG group or debt capital markets fit into the wider ICM practice? So the ICM group globally has about 500 or so lawyers and a large number of those are based in London. GSG is quite a big group within the ICM department so we are a very important part of that group but on most deals they're cross-border so actually the reality is every deal we do pretty much has more than one office involved or another local council involved and so we're not just working from London in a silo with clients based in the UK, we quite often work from London or actually be working with people from Amsterdam or from Dubai. And actually, there's a lot of collaboration, a lot of working closely together and to cement that working relationship off deals. We, we often meet up, for instance, we have a sort of a global capital markets event where everyone gets together and has a chance to meet over a beer and speak to each other just to really form those relationships that are critical to sort of working well on deals. 
Okay. So what kind of deals do you typically work on? And we'll then move on to the more interesting ones that you've done and why you found them interesting. But first things first, (laughs) what deals do you typically work on? So my day-to-day work is pretty varied in the fact, as I said before, I work on debt capital market new issuances, but I also work in liability management. And liability management involves essentially doing things to a bond once it's been issued, so buying it back or changing the terms. Okay. And that and that gives you quite a variety of work. And so it's just looking at each of those individually. On the sort of new issuance side, the example that sticks in my mind at the moment is actually we went into lockdown and it was a pretty bleak time, I think, for everyone. And was rightly focused on the health workers and the social care workers. But actually just looking at the economy a lot of companies suddenly lost an awful lot of their revenue. Yeah. And actually those companies suddenly found themselves really having to work hard to make sure they had the funding in place to continue their businesses as they wanted to. And so the way the government sort of stepped in to help was they said, right, we'll allow you to issue what this product called commercial paper, which is essentially a short-term debt instrument. And the Bank of England would then step in to buy it. And so that all sounds really, really good, exactly the sort of thing you'd expect a government to do. But actually... I don't think we could have expected quite how much it would impact A&O. We've worked on those sorts of programmes for many years. We've established them, updated them. They're normally on a much longer timeline than you'd see in a crisis. And we just found ourselves literally tripping over people asking us to set up programmes for them. And these were all done on a super accelerated basis. What does Um, super accelerated mean? You know, under a week. Um, Whereas (laughs) they were, before that, they might be looking at six weeks or, or sort of that sort of time. They're not really most big issuers will probably want a commercial paper programme. But once you've got it set up, you tend to sort of leave it, don't touch it. Whereas all of a sudden we found issuer after issuer was coming out of the woodwork and saying, actually, we'd like this set up. Even if we don't want to use it, we should just have it. Yeah. And so it was a really busy period. Um, <laughs> but it did actually, for the first time since the lockdown started, we actually could say we feel like we're making a bit of an impact on things. It was a very exciting time. And how about you, Ruby? We're in the same intake. So we both qualified at the beginning of lockdown. Yeah, it was a strange time to qualify. I know, right? And I hope your quality leave wasn't too badly ruined. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. No, my plans were fine. So that was good. But I know that a lot of my friends who were out traveling and they were in Bali suddenly rushing, trying to get a flight home, which all sounded a bit hectic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I did. I was in Texas uh, when this whole thing happened. (laughs) And I just had to jump on the first flight and come back. So what kind of deals have you worked on since you qualified and when you were a trainee, really? I've actually helped Andrew out a lot. We've tag teamed a lot of these commercial paper deals that he was talking about. And since I've qualified, I think the types of deals that I've worked on, my horizons have been broadened <laughs> since qualification. As I mentioned, a lot of commercial paper programs, but I've also been involved in Islamic finance deals in the debt capital market space. And that was quite a intra-office effort as well. I was working with our Dubai office and also deals, for example, with US elements where some types of US investors are targeted, which are a bit more complicated. And some of the deals I did when I was a trainee, I did quite a few of those as well. So the types of deals that you can actually do in the debt capital market space are so much more varied than I realized when I was a trainee. What are some of the more interesting ones you have worked on and why did you find them interesting? And you can't pick commercial paper because Andrew already took that. (laughs) (laughs) No commercial paper. I think one of the Islamic finance deals I did was probably one of the more interesting ones. And I think that was because I'd not ever done it before. I mean, there's so much new terminology that I was not aware of. So you don't call bonds bonds in Islamic finance. You call them them? sukuk. I'm not sure if that pronunciation is spot on, but there's so many new elements 
to it that I hadn't experienced. All the documents are called different names. There's a lot of funky structures that you have to think about. That was really interesting for me. I mean, for someone who does Islamic finance all the time, maybe, I don't know, maybe less so, but (laughs) I thought that was quite a good one. Okay, that's very interesting. Ruby, back to your time as a trainee, just Mm -hmm. throwback time. What are the typical trainee tasks and responsibilities that you had in GSG? And Angie, you can chip in as well, because I'm sure you've had trainees. There's quite a lot. I think that one example, which is, I guess, a bit more specific to GSG and ICM practice is managing a listing process. And so when I say listing process, what I mean by that is when an issuer wants to issue bonds and they want to list those bonds on a stock exchange, for example, the London Stock Exchange, there's a process you need to go through so that the competent authority for that stock exchange, if we're talking about the London Stock Exchange, that would be the Financial Conduct Authority, also known as the FCA, and they would need to approve the prospectus, which is a document that's kind of aimed at investors for them to get all the information they need so that they can make an investment decision. So the FCA in this example would need to approve that prospectus before the bond could issue bonds under that prospectus and list them on the stock exchange. In practical terms, for a trainee, what that means is that they would need to liaise with, in this example, the FCA, submit drafts of the prospectus to them, deal with their comments, have that dialogue with the FCA so that could get the prospectus into a shape where it will be approved. I think that that's just one example. But generally speaking, I do think that there is quite a lot of overlap between trainee tasks and associate tasks in the team. For example, we would often ask trainees to draft all of the documents that will be needed for a particular transaction and you know obviously they'll be then reviewed by someone and maybe a few different people I thought that was really helpful when I was a trainee because you really got to get a flavor for what it would be like to be an associate because you were drafting documents and you would act as a point of contact for different parties on a deal and that kind of thing I thought that was really helpful to get that experience. How about you Andrew what kind of other tasks and responsibilities do you give your trainees? Um, That's a very very broad (laughs) question. Um, before we get to that, just to add on to what Ruby was saying, I mean, I think that the thing about ICM and certainly GSG is we always try and get the trainees very involved. And I think they're always amazed at actually how much hands-on experience they get working with clients, actually drafting, sending the emails, speaking to people. You get quite a lot of responsibility, I think, in GSG and ICM compared to, say, some of the other types of work that the firm does just because of the nature of the work. If you're doing an ICM transaction, quite often there'll be a partner on the deal maybe a senior associate counsel and an associate. And then as a trainee, you're the fourth person that makes up that team. The reality is you do get quite a lot of experience and work. What were you saying about what the trainees do? That's a pretty fair summary. I think we would, generally speaking, try and get the trainees to speak to clients as much as possible. I mean, there's a lot of obviously oversight and making sure that people are sending out the right messages and that sort of thing. You get a lot of chance to speak to clients, send emails. Most pieces of work, if there's time on the deal to allow it, we'll get the trainees to have a look at it first, have a think about it, and then we'll review it and talk to them about it afterwards. I think it's quite a broad mix of work for a trainee. I remember I also did a seat in GSG, actually. It was my first seat. And I remember towards the end of my seat, there was this deal and there was a partner on it. It was a supplement. And he was like, well, it's going to be me and you on this one. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay, this is very exciting. And it all went well, thankfully, even though right before we had to submit, I think, the supplement, the IT systems all froze. (laughs) And we had to change it and we had the deadline and it was a stressful five minutes until it was sent, like literally a few seconds before the deadline. But I remember that was a very cool experience as a trainee because you get a lot of exposure even to the partners and how they work and think about things. Yeah, Um, definitely. Now that we've 
thought about what you do as a trainee. How does this change after you qualify and then as you move on through your career with seniority? If I just pick up on the qualification aspect, I'm a little bit closer to that. Um, Like I just said, there is a lot of overlap between what trainees do and what associates will do. But I think the key difference, and I doubt this will be surprising to anyone listening, is just the amount of responsibility that you get. It's just a real step up once you qualify in that respect. Though I would just flag, I mean, this is slightly going off on a tangent from the question, (laughs) but just for anyone that would worry about it or think about it, because I certainly did, is worrying about making that leap between trainee and associate and what is it going to be like once you've lost your safety net of coming under the title of trainee but actually it's not really anything to worry about because I think kind of as Andrew alluded to earlier our teams when we work on a transaction are usually structured in such a way that you get a few different people from the team working on a deal and they're all at different levels of experience so Andrew and I do loads of deals together so it's really great that I can kind of run some of the day-to-day but then when difficult questions come up or I want to get a second opinion on something or maybe I haven't experienced something before Andrew and I can touch base and sort it out together so I think that although responsibility is probably the biggest change I've noticed, it's not something to worry about as such, just for any potential people coming up to qualification that might be thinking about that. And then I think also, as we talked about a bit earlier, just the types of deals that I've worked on since qualifying, I've really had such a broader experience in terms of the different work that we do that I think there maybe just wasn't as much time for in, you know, in a six month seat. What do you think, Andrew? You're one step higher. So how does everything change? How did the responsibilities evolve? So I think it doesn't actually change that much in terms of the day-to-day. Ruby was very kind to suggest that <laughs> she, when she speaks to me, I'm helpful, which is always, always <laughs> nice. But you're still doing the deal work as you get more senior. The slight difference is, though, that you take a, I suppose, a more big picture view of the transaction. You're not just looking at the particular task you're doing right in the moment. You're also looking at how is it all going to unfold? Are there any issues that are going to crop up that will need to be dealt with now or you need to start putting in place the, the strategy to deal with them? And I think also just it, you know, as you get more experience, you are, I suppose, less likely to sort of have not encountered something before. And that's the thing I see as being the real value you add as a more senior person is actually when I'm talking to someone like Ruby, who's brilliant, but actually she will come up with maybe an issue that she hasn't seen before, but actually chances are I might have seen it a few years back and it's happened before. So at least you get a bit of a steer of how to deal with it. And the other thing you do, I guess, as you're more senior, as you sort of progress up in seniority is you start looking at other things that the firm is interested in. So in an ICM context, we're very focused at the moment on the what we call advanced delivery, but it's the automation, the digitization of capital markets. And for me personally, I'm heavily involved in some of the work we're doing with fintech, such as Navura, and looking at how you might automate, for instance, MTN issuances under programs. And, and what are MTN issuances? So MTN issuances is <laughs> it's not not as cryptic as it sounds. You've obviously picked up. There's lots of acronyms in ICM. <laughs> so, so MTN it stands for medium term note. And basically it's a sort of a standard product that a normally a big corporate issuer will issue on a fairly quick basis because they've already got a program set up and so they can just take advantage of a particular opportunity in the market. And every year they have to update their program, they change all the disclosure, but when that's done, the program is kind of ready to be used very quickly. That program hasn't changed for quite a few years since it was like the, the 90s, 80s. You know, It hasn't really evolved very much. It's reasonably efficient but actually the scope to make things more efficient with automation. And some of the work at the moment in ICM is looking at how you might automate those sorts of transactions. And there's companies that are interested in doing that and we're working with them. And so as a senior lawyer, you have more time freed up to do that sort of work, uh, which I would see as being more strategic. It's not relevant 
directly to the day-to-day transactions you might be running, but it's undoubtedly going to be the future of capital markets and it's it's where absolutely we should be. I suppose it's one of those things that you just have to keep innovating with until you get the right product. That sounds very interesting, which leads me to a question for Ruby, the big question. Why did you choose to qualify in GSG? <laughs> that is quite a big question. Um, <laughs> very important question. <laughs> yeah, I really wanted to qualify into GSG. And I think there are quite a few reasons, all sorts of things like the team are great and all of that, which is completely true. But I think a few main reasons around GSG itself and the debt capital market space. The style of work that we do, I think, really fits well with my own personality and skill set. And when I say that, I mean that it is a transactional department. We work on transactions. And I think that requires a certain amount of organisation and, quite frankly, project management skills, which really works for me. I'm quite organised, sometimes a bit too too organised. I love a good (laughs) list and that kind of thing. And also that transactional aspect does lend itself quite well to fintech and, and legal technology and that being useful in that space that Andrew just spoke about. But at the same time, the debt capital markets sector is highly regulated. So there are a lot of laws and regulations that we need to work with and consider. And those often throw up interesting questions. So I think that kind of balance in in the style of work works for me. Between transactional and actually delving into the weeds of the law. Exactly. It has a bit of both, which I quite like. So then also aside from that... (laughs) kind of cringe at myself for saying it this way but it, we won't judge yeah i can't speak for our listeners no. but here in this room we won't at least you guys are okay so it is also quite exciting in terms of the work that you do it is very high profile and i know that you know, i think all the departments in ano work on high profile matters but in gsg you do work with household names every day you work with governments and countries and also when you close a trade so if what is a trade so a trade is when an issuer is actually issuing a bond so they're actually putting a bond out into the market it's being bought and they are receiving money for that so when you're actually doing that as one of your deals usually the sums of money that are involved are hundreds of millions or billions of dollars or euros or whatever currency you might be working in so when you have been working on this trade as we call it for a few days and you get it to the end and suddenly the issuer has three billion dollars and it was all because of the work you did that morning like it feels kind of cool i do really like that that aspect of it and the direction the sector's going in as well sustainable finance green bonds that kind of thing it's nice to be involved in those progressive that the sector's making. So I think those are probably my top reasons for GSG. I think that's definitely the thing that struck me when I qualified into GSG. I mean, it's a while ago now, but... I mean, just same reasons sums- apply. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't say it better than Ruby. No, the, the sums of money involved are just astronomical. I mean, that's the thing. You go from being a law student to basically living off canned tuna or whatever you live off and then you suddenly start and you qualify and then you're suddenly doing bond issues worth billions and it's just immense in terms of that level of responsibility and as I said earlier there's only probably about three or four you know lawyers on those deals and you might have raised you know at the end of it a few billion for a company and it is quite exciting actually at the end of it particularly when you see what the companies are doing with the sums they're raising they're building factories they're making acquisitions all the sort of stuff that you kind of read about in the FT our financing work is what generates those deals that follow on it's quite interesting Thank you for that and for those insights. And this leads us to the even better part of the podcast, which is the game. Uh, (laughs) What I've been waiting for. (laughs) I know. So on Would You Rather, I will ask you a question and you'll have 30 seconds to discuss it and decide what each of you would rather do. Would you rather be on a survival reality show 
or a dating game show. And this is because obviously Love Island is a very popular show in the UK. So I just had to ask. <laughs> a survival reality show or, or a dating game a show. dating game show. I think I would go survival reality show. So you're very sporty. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I would go that far, um, but I've always kind of thought it would be really cool to take a like a survival course. I've looked into it and they're very expensive, so I haven't quite made the plunge ever. But I think that would be a really cool thing to actually. Sorry, this is slightly a, a tangent again, but I had a power cut recently and it made me just realize my own mortality. So I think survival would be fun. So getting close to the 30 seconds, Andrew, just I gut instinct. The same. I mean, I wouldn't be on it long, I have to say. I would be, I'd be booted off probably at the first opportunity, but it'd be good fun for the short while I was on it. That's fair. That's fair. And last but not least, would you rather be unable to close any door once it's open or unable to open any door once it's closed? First one. Personally. So unable to close any door once it's open, like including your house door and just leave it. Could someone else close it for you? I mean, if you are with someone else, but you would constantly have to. You'd be stuck be in the room someone. otherwise, wouldn't you? <laughs> if you just, <laughs> yeah. Whatever room you're in when the power started, you couldn't get out of it. I mean, unless you weren't with someone else, in which case they would do it for I you. I think I'd go with the first one as well, but that is tricky. I think I'd just need to find myself a really great, fr- or like maybe like an assistance dog. Just get a that box of open doors. Bo- yeah, bo- <laughs> box of door closers. That's what you need. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you both for coming and thank you for the wonderful insights that you have shared. I'm sure our listeners will find them incredibly helpful. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening and don't forget to tune in for our next episode as well as check out our social media and graduate recruitment website. Bye.